Before we get started, um, we have these cool little blue cards in front of you. This is your first time here at your Redeemer Fellowship Church. Welcome. Um, and it says on the front, tell us about you. Uh, it has a, some, some simple name, number, question. We want to get to know you. Uh, we hate when people come to church and we never got to meet them. Uh, or we never got any information about them. So we can't like follow up with them and ask them how their experience was. So please, if you don't mind doing it, even if you're like, man, I don't ever want to come here again, please just fill it out. So that you could tell us that in person, and you could say, "Hey, there's some things I didn't like," or "I love this," or "I love that." We just want to know you and encourage you. Uh, and uh, and so there's also a front section that's kind of fun. It's got some questions there, like kind of like what what what, what uh, says like, which one will you choose? Some pretty funny questions right there. And if you fill this out, we promise we will give you a book from our bookstore. Uh, we've got some cool books in there, and so this is something you should do because you may get a free book out of it. So please. Please do that. Please be encouraged to do that. Uh, we are in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. If this is your first time with us because you've been gone all summer, and we have been doing a series uh, from the beginning of summer to now the end of the summer uh, with, uh, the, with the book of Revelation. And so we're in the last two chapters of this great book um, that may, maybe for some of you, you were so afraid of this book, and now hopefully you aren't as afraid of this book and this book has been a huge encouragement to you. And you'll come back to this book in your quiet time later on and be encouraged by God's word uh, in this book. Uh, the title of this sermon is, This is Eternal Life. This is Eternal Life. This, that, obviously that title comes from uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Um, and he talks about this is eternal life, that we know God. That's eternal life. Um, and I want to open this up. Actually, let me read, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'll, I'll get into this. I'm so excited about preaching this chapter that I'm just kind of losing my thoughts a little bit. Um, I, I'll tell you this little short story here, but just to kind of help you. I remember me and Denton were sitting here one day, and it was before the summer starting. We're like, what should we do as a sermon series for the summer? We always do a sermon series in the summer. And I was like, you know, I really want to do Revelation 21 and 22. And we kept talking about it, and then Finn's like, we should just basically, I always like doing the whole book better than just doing a few chapters. And I said, you know what, let's just do the whole book. So they came from originally wanting to focus on these particular chapters, 21 and 22, and now we've kind of prepared our hearts and our minds to understand these chapters better uh, because we've gone through the whole book. So I'm going to read, because there's so many past verses, and we're going to go through it, I'm going to read the, the first eight verses here in 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, the first things, have passed away. And he who is seated on, who is sitting on the, on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write these down, write, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha I am the, Al the Al Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for everyone that you have brought here this morning to hear from your word, to be encouraged by your word, to be challenged by your word. For some people, hopefully convicted by your word. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ, Lord, that through your spirit, which we know is here with us, that you would lead them to saving faith. Lord, we pray, Lord, for our friends who are not with us. We pray for Olivia Lee, who's not with us. Pray for her family right now. I pray, Lord, for Josh Strout, who's not here with us as well because of his family. I pray for J.D. and Gloria, Lord. Lord, we pray for others who are not back yet from their summer. Lord, I pray that they'll have safe travels back. Lord, we pray for our students and the students at USI who have all moved in or moving in, Lord, right now. Lord, we pray for them as they start classes tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you'd give them your, your grace and your protection. We pray for the professors and the, and the faculty and the, the administrators at USI, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. Lord, I pray for students this summer, this, I'm sorry, during this semester, who, Lord, you have elected and chosen to hear the gospel and will come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, that, Lord, that you would send your people to proclaim your gospel to those who do not have it. Lord, their hearts will be open, their eyes will be open to hear and believe and trust in you. We praise you. We love you. We pray for our, 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 school, our kids who are going to school or staying at home. Lord, we pray for them as well as they've started classes. We pray for their, their parents and their, and their teachers. Lord, I pray for them as well. Lord, we pray for all of our schools and in our, in our, in our community, Lord, that, Lord, at, right now, we're, I know we're under a lot of stress trying to uh, keep kids safe and, and not get COVID during this time. Lord, I pray, Lord, for protection on the teachers and the staff, and the students as well. Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. So many things to pray about right now, isn't there? Um, and uh, so just a few things I got, that I pray. Just, if you can think about, we have some teachers in this room, pray for the for teachers, uh, pray for parents who are homeschooling as well during this time, pray for parents that are doing virtual learning during this time, that will be difficult for them. Uh, pray for uh, um, students as well, uh, college students, and just and, and regular kids, you're going to school, and, I mean, wearing a mask to school is not typical and normal, but it's, it's something they have to do, and just pray for them, um, and pray for all involved in educating students during this time. Um, the title is, This is Eternal Life. The main idea is the central feature of the new heaven and new earth is the real and universal presence of God. The central feature of the new heaven and the new earth is the real and universal presence of God. And uh, as an introduction, uh, I was watching this, uh, I don't typically watch a lot of YouTube videos, but I was watching an R.C. Sproul's sermon, and the title of the sermon was uh, basically, uh, why, why would anyone want to go to heaven if their loved ones aren't there? Like, why would anyone be happy in heaven if their loved ones aren't there? And this is actually a question that is, that is actually a, a question that television shows and movies dealing with the afterlife have asked. How can heaven be heaven if the ones you love aren't there with you? So R.C. Sproul's told this story 
uh, from his seminary days, he asked his professor, he was in this uh, seminar with a few other students. If you've never been to a seminar in seminary, it's like not a huge lecture hall. It'd be like maybe six to seven or eight students sitting around a table with a professor. Uh, either they'd read some books together or wrote papers for this professor, and they're discussing certain topics. And so R.C. Sproul's, when he was in seminary, he was in this cohort, this seminar with, with his professor. And he had a relationship with his professor kind of on and on during his seminary years. And, one, and, they, and they discussed what they were discussing. And then one of the fel his fellow students rose, raised his hand and said, hey, professor, I have a question. And he said, OK. And he asked the question, why could people truly be happy in heaven if their loved ones aren't there? And the professor kind of leaned back and said something actually quite outrageous. Uh, and R.C. Sproul's reaction to the professor was laughter. He laughed out loud. The professor said that when you get to heaven, when you get to the new world, the new earth, the new heaven, when you have been fully sanctified by God, that you're fully holy because of God and his, his, his grace in your life, and that when you get to the point of heaven and earth, you're glorified, that you're, you're holy in every way, that you could actually, by words, the professor said, you could look at, to your dead mother who may be in hell and say, praise the Lord that God's wrath is upon my own mother. This is what the professor said. And R.C. Sproul's laughed out loud because that's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard. Why would you say that to the student in your answer? But it made R.C. Sproul's think. It made him reflect on this answer that what happens a lot of times when we think about heaven, we think only kind of materialistically what, we're, what we lack on earth and what we're going to get in heaven. Like, so if a loved one dies on earth, I can't wait to see them when I get to heaven. Or, uh, you know, um, I can't wait to be able, like, you know, for some people who have to wear glasses or hearing aids or who deal with uh, 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 some type of physical ailments that they have to deal with, I won't have to deal with that when I get to heaven. So the focus isn't on what this professor is talking about. The focus is never on that you will be completely holy. That you will be completely satisfied because God is with you and God has made you holy. And so therefore you praise his name and you're joyful about his name. There's actually a movie that came out in 1998 called What Dreams May Come. It had Robin Williams in it. And the movie was about a doctor, I believe a doctor or a dentist, who dies. He goes off to heaven, and he realizes that his wife, because he had died, had committed suicide, and that she was in hell. And so he basically has this, he can never be satisfied or joyful in heaven because his wife's not with him. So he goes, travels to hell to rescue her. That's basically the story. And answering the question, well, how can anyone truly be happy if their loved ones aren't with them? There's a TV show that just finished called The Good Place, which asks the same question. Why would I want to be in heaven or the afterlife forever if my loved ones can't be with me? And that's how people think about heaven. They think materialistically in their understandings of heaven and eternal life. Loved ones, mansions, and the pleasures and comforts of paradise. And what Jesus says to Peter, right, when, he, when uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, what was Peter's sin? He focused only on the things of men. He focused only on the things of the world. And Jesus rebukes him. And really, we almost need the same rebuke that we only constantly think about the things of this world that we lack or we've lost and how we are going to get them in heaven. Rarely do we think about our own glorification and actually being in the presence of God. 
You think about people who have written about utopia or paradise. Karl Marx called it uh, uh, heaven or utopia or paradise or nirvana as the opium for the masses. And usually the way that people define heaven or utopia or paradise is harmony, comfort, peace, zen mindset, lack of want. But what is the common denominator? The absence of God. Paradise without God only leads to more brokenness and false hope. Presidents, kings, queens, rulers promise this utopian dream during their rule, this hope. But, it's, but that hope and that dream is empty. Because God is not present in these utopian dreams, these hopes are just projects that have no completion. If you found out that God and Jesus weren't going to be in heaven, but the streets would still, still be gold, and the gates pearl, and the walls jasper, and the water living, and the tree leaves healing, and all your dearly departed there, but Jesus and the Father were not, would, would not be there, would you still want to go? A heaven without God, a heaven without Christ, is actually hell. Regardless of what it looks like. Regardless if your loved ones are there. Regardless if you have all the comforts in the world. Without God, it's hell. Because what is Babylon, as we talked about a few weeks ago, what is Babylon the city promising? Luxury, comfort, peace. But it's the absence of God. And what is the conclusion to that path? Destruction. The presence of God in Christ is the defining factor when we talk about eternal life, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about the new heavens and the new earth. The world, the city of Babylon, is also adorned with gold, rare jewels, and pearls. The kings of earth and the merchants and the shipmasters are blessed by her wealth and luxuries, but God and Christ are not a part of her. It is a dwelling place for demons, not God. And since God does not dwell with her, it is defined by sexual immorality and evil and not righteousness and not holiness. The entire Bible has been basically leading to this point. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, man has been separated from the full presence of God, right? We get to chapter 21 of Revelations. What do we have here? We have a reestablishment of the presence of God with his people. And that's why the sermon is entitled, This is Eternal Life. Eternal life, heaven, is not comfort, it's not zen, it's not peace, it's not uh, the things that we think about materialistically, it's not being able to see our loved ones. Eternal life is knowing God fully and his son, Jesus Christ. So the main point Point number one, I think it's on the screen, is the fully sanctified people of God will have full fellowship with God and the Lamb and full access to God and the Lamb's abundant blessings forever in the worldwide paradise city temple. Those three ideas, fully sanctified, full fellowship, full access, is the three major points to this entire two chapters and really the entire point of the Bible is to how to reestablish fully sanctified people of God or fully holy like God and will have full fellowship with God and have full access to God's abundant blessings. And we see here that we get the, the imagery or the context and the environment by which 
this will happen, that God's people will be fully sanctified, they'll have full fellowship with God, and they'll have the access to all the abundance of God's blessing that Adam and Eve first experienced, but then were kicked out. So the passage really starts with this, and really boldly here in 21, verse 1. So the old, heaven, the old earth, the old heaven that we see kind of passing away in chapter 20, when the great white throne is established and the world is judged and the, and the righteous who are seen in the book of life are given or ushered into God's kingdom, but those who are not in the book of life, those who have, been, who have not put their faith in Christ, who are actually the unrighteous, are judged and thrown in the lake of fire, which is the second death. So John, in chapter 21, he sees this new heaven, this new earth. The first has passed away. It's gone away. The old world has gone. The sin, a world that's defined by sin, which leads to brokenness. And that sin leads to decay, right? We, we see that Paul says in Romans 8.20 that uh, because of sin, the earth has been subjected to fertility. What does that mean? It's been subjected to decay. It's been subjected to corruption. Which then leads to death. There was no death in the world until Adam and Eve sinned. What is Jesus? What about, what about, you know, Jesus wept is like the shortest passage in the Bible, right? What does that, what does that passage mean? Jesus weeps at what? Lazarus' death. Jesus, the Son of God, who was a part of creation, weeps because death is in his Father's world. Death, decay, sin, sin, sin leads to death. But this has gone away. That old world has passed on. It is gone. A new heaven, a new earth has replaced it. And it says that the sea is no longer there. Why is that important? Why is there such a point on the sea not being there? Well, we've, we've kind of read throughout Revelation that the beast comes from the sea, right? Even in the, even in the book of Job, we see what? The, the Leviathan, the beast of the sea, the creature of the sea, right? Leviathan, which really recognizes and, and represents Satan, comes from the sea. We even see in Revelation, actually in Genesis chapter 1, that darkness covered the deep. And what did they do? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And some would argue that what you see there is that the water is chaos. And that the Spirit of God hovers over it and brings order to the sea. And there's no sea in God's new world. There's no evil that comes from the sea that threatens God's world or threatens God's people. Really, the sea represents the home of evil. And that shall be done away with. And then John sees a, a, a city, a holy city, descending out of heaven from God. This new Jerusalem, and it said it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This language of bride has been brought up before, right? Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The city represents something prepared by God that will bring him honor and glory. And I'm going to argue that what we see here is that some, uh, I don't think you have to read this as, as some literal city. I think it means it's presenting something uh, uh, that, is, that will bring God honor and glory. And we'll talk about it when we get to that 
that point a little later on in this chapter. So it says here that the city comes from heaven and, and that um, this city, um, it, it actually, oh, the, John hears this great voice uh, coming from the throne and it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So this is an announcement of amazing news. Anytime you see behold, anytime you see behold in the Bible, prepare for something important. Behold, what's so important? What is this amazing news that the, the voice from the throne says that God's dwelling place is with man? That God will tabernacle with his people. That he will live and resonate and reside with his people. Not in a tent, not with smoke, not in a building. Walk with them in the coolness of day that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. His presence will be real. Real. Not shadowed, not covered by a curtain, not allowed one person to go in there once a year, but he is real. His presence is real. And the people will feel it. They will know it. And he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. No mourning, no more, no crying, no pain, no longer. These are all the ill effects of sin. When, when Cain be killed Abel, what happened? Why did Cain kill Abel? He was jealous. He was envious of his brother. He was angry. And then he killed him. What do you think was the, what was the response of Adam and Eve to their son's death? Mourning? Weeping? Tears? Pain? What about David and Bathsheba? Lust? Sexual immorality? Deception? Murder? Death of a child? What do you think David and Bathsheba's response to all that? Pain? Weeping? Uh, crying? That is the ill effects of sin. And in God's new world, in his new heavens, in the new earth, there will be no sin. Therefore, there will be no weeping and crying. There will be no mourning for the effects of sin. There will be no death, no pain. Without the presence of God in Christ, there's no comfort and no satisfaction. That's why the whole point of these two chapters is the presence of God. That is the central feature here. You can almost get lost in the language. You can always say, well, all new heaven, new earth is about is that there will be no crying, there will be no death, there will be no sin. But if there's no presence of God, there will still be sin. If there's no presence of God, there still will be death. If there's no presence of God, there will be weeping and tears. The presence of God in the new heaven and new earth, his real presence, is the most central and significant feature of this entire book. And God, this is the second point here, God is making all things new. All things are being made new. Again, he says it again, behold, this is important, behold, God is making all things new in verse 6. So pay attention. Something amazing is about to happen. I'm making all things new, which is so interesting because what does the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says? He says there's nothing new under the sun. What, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What does God do? He said there will be something new under the sun. What is crooked can be made straight. One of my favorite three words is this entire chapter is the next one. It says, it is done. It's done. He's made things all new. It's happened. There's another way you can read that. It's happened. 
It's done. God's done it because why? His word is trustworthy and true. So even though it hasn't happened yet, God's word is so solid and so true and so trustworthy, we can state it as already being done. Because God is so sure in what he's going to accomplish. It's done. Why is he trustworthy and true? He says it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. He ties it all to his identity. I'm the one that created. I'm the one that will finish it. My everlastingness, my eternal nature is why you can trust me that I will get this done. It is done. It will happen. So the writer here says it's done. It's happened. And he will give to the thirsty from the spring of water of life without payment. This is almost a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 51.1, that the food and the water is free. It's without payment. The satisfying life in God cannot be earned or summited or charted. It's free. And they say in Sweden, it's gratis. It's free. It's completely free. Without any payment. Christ Jesus paid the price for you to drink from the spring of life, spring of water of life, without payment. See, there was a payment. Christ paid it. Christ paid it on the cross, through his blood, through his death, so that you won't have to pay it. Why? Because you don't have enough money to pay your way. You have nothing that you can offer God to earn your salvation. But Christ offered himself that you can have life everlasting. There's that song, I think one of the better songs, I think some of y'all, most of y'all probably watched Hamilton by now because of the uh, Disney Plus. Um, but there, one of the songs that is really popular that everyone likes is the song, He Will Never Be Satisfied, right? It's a really cool scene, not only in the movie, but also on stage, the rewinding and stuff. And what is that song trying to say? It's saying that Hamilton will never be satisfied, right? He'll never be satisfied. This is, the aware, this is the observation of him that he is never satisfied. He's always hungry for more. And actually proved out in the story that even his wife is not satisfying enough for him, right? His power is not satisfying enough for him. And we have that issue in our hearts that we're never satisfied. Satisfaction for your heart is only found in God. It is free for you to have because Christ brought it bought it for you with his blood. And he says here in, in 21, the one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. Obviously, this inheritance is talking about the tree of life, not being hurt by the second death, a new name. This is all the things that Jesus uh, exposes the seven churches to when he writes them. He, he has seven things that the one who overcomes, the one who will overcome, and then he mentions a, a basically a promise or a blessing. The, the, the one who overcomes will have access to the tree of life. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes will have a new name. The one who overcomes will have authority over the nations. The one who overcomes will clo be clothed and written in the book of life. And I will confess his name to the Father. The one who will overcome, I will make his dwelling place with my Father. The one who overcomes will sit with my Father as I sit with my Father. Those who overcome, those who experience this inheritance, are those... Who are satisfied in God. And they will dwell with God. And, and I love how this section ends. He says, 
God will be his. And he will be my son. He's not talking about Jesus, okay? He's talking about his church. It's about you and I who put our faith in Christ. You will be his. Well, God will be yours. And you will be a son and daughter of God. This is the key to the whole story. Starting back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, the offspring, and the nation. God doesn't simply save a people for himself. He doesn't simply choose them for salvation. He predestines them to what? A glorious future to be like his son. To sit with his son at the right hand of God. Like That is unbelievable. Why would God not only save you, but not only just save you, but conform you into the image of, your, of his son and then call you a son? Not just a servant, not a slave, not a minion, not, hey, it's good to be here, you're lucky to be here, a son. That's what he promises here. Going to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To what? To salvation? Just to be in the church? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. See, in the church, we talk a lot about justification. We talk a lot about election. We don't talk a lot about glorification, do we? What does it say here in the 29, 9 through 27? Talking about the, the city coming. And it says in verse, 10, in verse 11, having the glory of God. You get all this amazing language about this city. What does the angel say to John? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife, the lamb. Where have we seen that before? Oh, that's right, we saw that in Revelation 19. That wasn't talking about some, some, just, uh, some random woman who was a bride of Jesus. So it's talking about the church. He shows me the holy city Jerusalem adorned as the bride, the wife of the lamb. Can Jesus marry a city? It's talking about the church. All this language in 21 is about the church. Having the glory of God, radiancy. And talking about these great high walls and all these precious stones and these 12 gates and the 12 foundations of the wall of the city. And the angel measuring with a rod of gold in order that he may measure the city and its gates and its walls. And it says that it was massive. The walls were built with jasper at equal length, width, and height. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were every kind of jewels. The gates were 12 pearls, right? A single pearl for each gate. The streets of the city were pure gold like transparent gold. We hear those songs, right? The heavens will have the, 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 the streets will be full of gold. 
But actually, what it's talking about here is that Christ's church, his body, when it is glorified and it is made holy, it will radiate. It will, it will be, the glory of God will, will speak and, and be proclaimed, and it will be radiant. So bright and so pure and so beautiful that where will the honor and glory be? Not to the city, not to the church, but to God who made it. This is about the glorious presence of his people, saved by Christ, for Christ, and then to Christ, that they are conformed to Christ. The absence of sin, the consummation of our sanctification, that our sanctification is complete, that we are made into the image of Christ completely. Paul talks about this beautiful mystery that will be presented, and the angels and the heavenly hosts will, will praise God. When, when the church is revealed in its glorious estate. So what, if you're an early century church and you're reading this, what is the, the, the application? Don't lose heart. God will finish what he started before the foundations of the earth. This is God's magnum otis is the church. There's a, uh, again, I'm going to use R.C. Sproul's again. He uses this, this, this kind of presentation to explain to you the majesty of God's glorification of his church. Okay? If you had if I had three people up here, and the person all the way over here would be Hitler. Okay, we kind of we know who Hitler is, right? Um, kind of what he his life is, his character, everything about him, his wickedness, his evil. And on the other side, you had Jesus, Christ. And you had then the most holy person you can think of. The most holy, if it's your mom or it's a friend who you think it's so blameless. And so holy that if you put him on this, the him or her on the spectrum, he wouldn't be close to Jesus. He actually would be so close to Hitler, it would almost be unrecognizable in comparison to Christ. But then when you when when the new heavens and new earth come and you in the old you take the person you know and you move them and you move them right to Jesus. Why? Because because of Christ's sanctification and his glorification, you look more like Jesus than you do Hitler. That's how great God's glorification of the church is. And it's so beautiful and it's so radiant that when John sees this, he is described to him like beautiful walls and pure glass and pure gold. And it says that Nothing unclean will enter it, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because they have been saved by Christ. They have been raised to new life and conformed completely into the image of Christ Jesus. They have become sons and daughters of God. They are welcomed home. And those who have not trusted in the Son, Jesus Christ, are not welcome. Because their heart is hardened to their sin. They're not redeemed. They're not conformed in the image of Christ. They do not desire the things of God. They desire the things of Babylon and the world. And they're not welcomed. They're not a part of the city. They're not allowed entrance into the city. They're outside. They're judged. They're thrown in the lake of fire. They're thrown into the second death. And that is including a lot of people who went to church who looked like they had it all together, but they never truly loved God, didn't truly recognize their sin, repent of their sin, and trust in Christ, and they're left out. The amazing thing about 
God's glorification of his church is that he takes monstrous sinners and makes them like Jesus Christ. And that is amazing. It says that God's glory gives light and its lamp is the lamb. God provides all their needs. They walk constantly in his presence. The gates are always open. Their safety is secure. No fear of unwelcome visitors. No fear that they have to move somewhere else to get away from someone who's a predator. No need to worry about that. No night for the evil to hide. Point four is that the new and better Eden. This is the new and better Eden. Similar language that you see in Genesis chapter 2, the river of life that flows out of Eden, right? We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. This, this river of life is bright as crystal. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the, Bible, the Old Testament talks a lot about this water, this living water, this, this pure water that flows from God to his people. Look at John chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well. What does he promise her? Living water. Life-giving water is offered, and in the, in the, in the God's people and the church have access always to this life-giving water. It talks about the tree of life, and this tree produces 12 kinds of fruit every month. A tree that actually produces 12 different types of fruit. There's no tree that I can think of that produces 12 different types of fruit on its one branch. And it produces that fruit every month. Not just in its harvest months, but every month. Passes of Ezekiel, even here in, in, in 22, on either sides of the river are this tree. In the Eden, we just had one tree of life. It seems like in this world that there is multiple and many trees of life. We see this in Ezekiel 47, that Ezekiel sees this vision. He sees many trees surrounding the river of life. That this is abundance. There is an abundance of fruit. There is an abundance of water. And that there's never any need or want. And God's people always have access to this. It says that the leaves were for the healing of the nations. You think of all the issues that are happening in our country right now. Naturalism, racism, bitterness, warfare, hate. We all can talk about healing. Presidents and politicians can talk about healing. But only God provides healing. Only God provides healing to these issues. Only God can rid the world from these issues. And all nations will be healed through Christ. The ever-present God will bring in abundance what plagues the world. But only God provides what the world so desperately lacks. Only God can provide what the world so desperately lacks. You can't earn it. You can't win it in a protest or a war. Your sin has disqualified you from this healing, yet in Christ you have access. You can't win harmony. You can't protest for harmony. Harmony and justice and love and peace and abundance only come through Christ, and you are totally disqualified from it in your sin, and you only get it through the blood of Christ. And one of the most powerful verses in this chapter, no longer will anything be accursed. No longer will anything be condemned. There's not an issue like in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. That will never happen in the new heaven and new earth. The tree of life will never be guarded by an angel with a flaming sword. 
God has dealt with our disobedience. He's new, including you, me, and us. Fellowship will always be with God and his people. There's no interruptions because God and the land will be in it. See, that is the central... You, you can ask yourself all about this world, but if you miss the point that God's there, then you'll never have abundance. You'll never have the blessings. God being there and the fellowship with God is what makes this happen. Nothing will be cut off. His dwelling place will be perfect. His people will be perfect and holy. They are holy as he is holy, and they shall see his face, it says. They will worship him in his holy presence in their holy states with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. As Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, they will be one with God as they are with Christ. His name is on their foreheads. They will reign forever and ever. Not only do we get Eden back, not only do we get the garden back, but we get Adam's rule back as well. The, the rule that he lost, the kingship that he lost, that Christ then reestablishes through his life, he now gives it to his people and to his church. And they will reign forever, certainly. It's not in doubt. They will never lose it. We will never lose our role in God's kingdom. Nothing from the old world will be able to hinder God's glorious presence with his people. And it says in verse 9, to worship God. For our this, worship him, praise his name for this truth. Don't compromise, stay faithful. Behold your future. Jesus says, I'm coming soon at the end of 22. I'm coming, be faithful. Behold your future, trust and, and believe in God's word. And stay faithful, don't compromise. He says here in the last part of 22, If your robes are washed, then you may enter the gates of the city, drink from the water of life, and eat from the tree of life. Don't be hardened to your sin. He says here, Let the evil be, do evil things, let the filthy do filthy things, let the righteous do righteous things, and the holy do holy things. The issue with this is that we do evil things, we do filthy things. The issue that the evil and the filthy have is they don't recognize their acts, and don't repent of their acts. That's why they're left out. That's why they don't wash their robes in the blood of Christ. Because their hearts are hardened to their sin. Blessed are those who recognize their sin. And do what? Wash their robes. Recognize their sins. Come to the cleansing waters of Jesus Christ. And the tree of life and the entrance into the city by the gates. If you do not recognize your sin. If you harden your heart. If you do not have your sins washed away in the waters of Christ through faith in Him, you will not have access to the tree of life. You will not have access to the city through its gates. And instead, you will be left out. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You can think, again, like I said before, there's people in the church that are liars. So I think that's why it's mentioned here. Those who do falsehoods, they're liars. They say they believe in Christ, and, and even Jesus said there'll be sheep and wolves, wolves closing. John talks about this in 1 John. They were actually not amongst us. This is a common thing. It's always been a common thing in the history of the church. Those who are liars, who say they believe in Christ and desire God, and actually do not, they will be left out. Because they never their robes, they never confess their sins, they never confess their evil and filth. 
You'll be thrown in the lake of fire. This is a warning to not harden your heart to God. It ends, the passage ends, the whole Bible ends with this. After all of this, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's such a, it's such a great prayer. And I think it's a prayer that we don't say a lot. Because you know why? Because we are so comfortable here. And we really love the world. We don't want Jesus to come. Because if Jesus comes, we know the world will go away. When you desire Christ above all, and all that you have is Christ, you can then utter the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, come. The presence of God in the Lamb now is in the midst of His church. The reason why people don't grow in their faith is because they're not in the church. Why? Because that's where the presence of God is. What have we learned through this entire two chapters? If God's not present, you will not become like Christ. Life and satisfaction is where the God's presence is. It's found now in the midst of God's people. It's the center of God's activity. Do not forsake God's presence. The need for faithfulness in the midst of trial. You will fail to be faithful if you forsake the church. Why? Because that's where God's presence is. And if you're not around God's presence, you will fail and you will fall away. Seek today to be washed by Christ. Come today to be united with the people and experience God's presence in the gathering of believers. Join us today and say the prayer of the saints, Come, Lord Jesus. Because when you recognize that I am tired of my sin, I'm tired of the temptations of the world, you'll say, I'm tired of the world. And I'm tired of my sin. So, Lord Jesus, come back and make all things new. Make me new. Because I know that I will never be like you until you come back. When I see you, as First John says, when I see you, I will be like you. Come, Lord Jesus. Dwell amongst us that we may see your face and enjoy your abundant blessings forevermore. This is eternal life. Not that you see your loved ones more, your dead loved ones who've gone away. Hey, me and my grandfather who's in this room share a common love. We both love Maggie Royal a lot. And she passed away several years ago, to our big surprise. And there's nothing more that we probably don't think about is seeing her again, right? But I love Maggie Royal, and my daughter's named after her. But here's the deal. I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus more than her. Because Jesus died for me and loved me. And by my love for Christ, he will make me like him. And because of Jesus and the presence of God... I can be made new. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray, Lord, for anyone in this room who have totally wrong perspectives on heaven and eternal life, thinking it's just like uh, angels in the cloud playing harps and, and basically uh, playing the perfect golf game or whatever it is. Seeing loved ones that have passed. Well, that is such the wrong perspective. The right perspective is, is that the new heaven and the new earth is the, it will be the universal and real presence of God and the Lamb forever. That the earth will be covered in His presence. You wouldn't be able to escape the presence of God. You will always be dwelling. That's why it says that there's no need for light. Because you're always in the presence of God. You're always in the presence 
of God the Lamb. And that, well, we, won't, we won't shudder in that light. We won't cover our face in fear. We'll instead look and worship and be full of joy and happiness that we are in the presence of God that we look at our Holy Father and our Holy Savior and we can recognize that we are also holy because they are holy and he has made us holy. And we will praise your name and joyfully celebrate that fact forevermore. If there's anyone here that that just completely blows their minds, Lord, save them. Lord, show them their sin. Soften their hearts. And may they pour out to you, Lord, I am a sinner. I've done evil and filthy things. And I've realized that without Christ, I am unclean and do not deserve to be in your kingdom. Lord, make me new. Save me.